the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to bring back Benjamin Weingarten. He is, of course, a senior editor over at The Fe- at the Federalist as well as a uh, contributor to Newsweek. He can be followed on Twitter at B.H. Weingarten, W-E-I-N-G-A-R-T-E-N, an author of a great book last year, American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. On Substack, he re-upped a piece he did about, oh, what was it, a month or so ago for American Greatness, um, titled, The Chinese Coronavirus is This Generation's Tiananmen Test. The timing for all of this being rethought through, given the anniversary from 1989, is perfect. Ben, thanks for joining us and coming back to Phoenix's Airwaves. Seth, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And actually, that piece came out April of last year. Oh, it's a year and a month. Okay, yeah. sorry. Which is why, which is actually why uh, you know, it, I have great pride in that because it could have been written yesterday. Uh, and, and there are positives and negatives to that, I guess. Uh, but look forward to talking about it. Dwight Eisenhower, right before the uh, right before D Day, you know the story. He wrote this note. In case of failure, that never got uh, sent uh, sent around because they didn't fail, and he dated it July fifth instead of June fifth, and I think that's what I did. So I apologize on missing the date. Eisenhower and I had other things. We missed it by he missed it by a month. I missed you by a year. I apologize, Ben. Not a problem at all. I'm sorry. I, I, I was just trying to put myself in good company. This is a big thing. And when you outline what the what the uh, what the Tiananmen test is, go right ahead. You do a nice definition of it. The test is as follows. What has it been? I appreciate it. The, the the test is this: in 1989, we saw the true face, the true nature of the Chinese Communist Party, which is that it was a murderous, tyrannical regime, which would do everything it could to then try to hide its true crimes against humanity. The difference our Tiananmen test today is that we are the victim of the Chinese Communist Party, and millions of people around the world are the victim of the Chinese Communist Party. It's Tiananmen Square writ large as a consequence of the cover-up of the coronavirus, the exploitation of the coronavirus, and potentially as well the origin of the coronavirus. And we failed the test in 1989 That's to right. hold the Chinese Communist Party to account to, to take into account the true nature of that regime, we barely even gave the Chinese Communist Party a slap in the wrist. Right. There, were, there was some talk of sanctioning and the like. But within half a decade, we had delinked trade from human rights concerns with respect to China. And as everyone knows, we integrated them into the global... Yeah, PNTR was right around the corner, wasn't it, as I recall, roughly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it, it accelerated the rise, the recapitalization, the stealing of technology, and on and on, that has made 
communist China into our greatest adversary in the world today and the only world power that really threatens to supplant America as the dominant world power. Ben, this do you time, think do you think we teach the behavior we get in foreign policy when it comes to countries like China? Have we engaged uh, let me give a for instance. <laughs> so when you, you know the Barack Obama red line with Syria, I have long said the problem wasn't that Syria violated the red line. The problem was that Syria knew they could violate the red line from Barack Obama and thus did it. That's the real tragedy. Have we done the same with China? Have we been so toothless with China over the years that they now know they can pretty much just do anything and get away scotch-free? Are we the paper tiger, in other words? We've always – it's a very good way to frame it. We've always labored under the assumption until the Trump administration really as a nation and then as an executive branch and federal government writ large, labored under the assumption essentially that at some core level, communist China wanted to be just like us. Obviously, we go back to the economic liberalization will lead to political liberalization. If we just have trade and bountiful, great economic relations and abundance, that that will lead them to come around. Uh, to, you know, 1776 America. And that was the, the theory, you know, this started with the Sino-Soviet split. So there was a real strategic reason to curry favor with communist China. But it obviously went so far afoul from that. And there were economic interests as well at the time of the opening up of the relationship. But they had our mark in a way and knew us much better than we knew them. And the reason that I say that is if you look at what, what they refer to colloquially as the Tiananmen Papers, which are sort of the official proceedings, the documents that have been unearthed over time, around the deliberation of the senior Chinese Communist Party leaders during what, for them, was the Tiananmen Crisis. There's one very senior party elder, essentially, who, and I'm paraphrasing here, is asked the question, well, what about what happens if the West suddenly stops wanting to invest in us and the, and the like? And he says... Basically, the Americans know that we're a big marketplace. I don't have any fear about them stopping trade with us. Something to that effect, literally in those kinds of terms. So they knew even in what should have been the darkest hours for the Chinese Communist Party vis-a-vis the U.S., in 1989, they were that confident that we would have a toothless response because they saw us as, I guess, being evil uh, Western materialists, ironically, because they're communists and they should be the materialists but that our self-interest, perceived self-interest, economic self-interest, short-term at least, would override the strategic imperative to see the Chinese Communist Party as it was, as it is, and that its ambitions stretched far beyond the mainland. You know, I wonder, I, I, I don't mean to make uh, too much of this, but, you know, we are dealing with these abstruse or inscrutable countries that, we continually underestimate. And I wonder, you know, in 1989, the president who flubbed Tiananmen, as far as I'm concerned, was George H.W. Bush. And I think people forget how much uh, angst he caused in the conservative movement, how much uh, 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 dissent there was about George H.W. Bush not saying more and doing more about Tiananmen. I remember it very vividly. And uh, in fact, I think at one point he said we must move past the present to look towards the future. I think he was just willing to paper over the whole damn thing. But the Chinese knew who George H.W. Bush was. They knew him from the CIA and they knew him as the ambassador to China. They had his number. They knew who they were dealing with. They didn't do this when Ronald Reagan was president. 
And I'm just wondering if there's some of that going on with Joe Biden, um, though they did do this when Donald Trump was president, uh, it appears. So perhaps the thesis is off, but maybe they understand American culture and Americans' ability or inability to react and respond strongly anymore. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder what your thought is on that. Yeah, and it's a great point about George H.W. Bush. And, you know, you kind of have to wonder, in the case of someone given a CIA posting, that's one thing. But as an ambassador, you wonder, are the people who get closer and closer to the Chinese Communist Party more apt to be captured by them? Or is it just that their charms and their whims and their machinations are so clever and so perfectly calculated to try to take advantage of Americans? Uh, To your point... Joe Biden always loves to talk about how he spent more time with Xi Jinping than any leader in the world. And I think that should actually give us a lot of fear (laughs) because because if anyone was going to be co-opted by Xi Jinping, it's likely Joe Biden. You know, I've written at length about the fact that throughout his career at the highest levels of the national security and foreign policy apparatus, because sort of akin to George H.W. Bush, Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years. Mm -hmm. He went to to China, I believe, first time in 1979, I I believe right after he entered office as a senator and spoke glowingly about that experience decades later. At every single turn in his career, with rare exceptions, Joe Biden has been a promoter of the integration, engagement, appeasement mindset with respect to communist China. And, of course, now we know about the dealings of his son, associated with Chinese Communist Party officials and, of course, investments relating to China and so-called advisory services pertaining to China as well. All of, And then, of course, the personnel who Joe Biden has surrounded himself with at the highest levels with respect to China policy. And all of these people have been part of the project of engagement, integration, appeasement. So why would we ever expect a different outcome with the exact same retread running the show again? And that's setting aside the potential economic relationship that some of these individuals had. People who had, you know, consulting firms where they were advising companies on doing business in communist China, which effectively means doing business with the Chinese Communist Party, and we should never forget that. Ben, do you have another segment, or do you have to run? I'd love to keep you if you can stay one more segment. Sure. Oh, well, great, because let me, let me tell you what I want to ask you on the other side, and you can think about it over the break, though no doubt you've thought about it for 20 years, and it's this question. If this were... 1950, and companies were discovered to have been doing business, American companies to have been doing business with Nazi Germany. There would have been all forms of protests, bankruptcies, and DOJ investigations. There would have been general and universal American revulsion. Why is it different now? What is so different that we give communism such a pass when we see what's going on with the Uyghurs, for example, as not that much different than what was going on in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. We'll do that with Ben Weingarten when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Benjamin Weingarten with us. He's a uh, contributor over at Newsweek and uh, senior contributor at The Federalist. His book, such an important book, gosh, it's almost about everything we're talking about when it comes to CRT and intellectual uh, assaults on America. And that's his book, American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Ben, I, 
I'm not sure if my question was was sort of was clear or not, but going into the break, I was saying to you, you know, we know what China is engaged in. We know the kind of regime it is. We know what's going on in Shenzhen province. Uh, we know Tibet, Hong Kong, Taiwan. Uh, uh, we know we know China pretty well, and yet we seem to be pretty blasé about blasé about things. And why is it that when we look into the, the, the these hearts of darkness that constitute communist China, that come with the complement of death camps and concentration camps like we knew from World War II and said never again about, we not only paper over it with this cavalier attitude, we, we actually defend it. We, we shut down Americans who stand up for Hong Kong protesters singing the national anthem in English. We would not have done this with Nazi Germany in 1950 any more than we would have in um, 1960, 70, 80 or today. But we do this with communist China. Why, what, why is that? Why is there this, uh, what would you call it, uh, detoxification of communism that doesn't exist for national socialism? Yeah, I, I think there is a, there's a spectrum of reasons here among those at the commanding heights so-called, at least, of American society. And there seems to have been a, a, a malady, a sort of sickness among our elites for decades, really, where there is a mirror imaging or an assumption that, well, they're always moderates and extremists in a regime like the way that our elites will talk about so-called moderates in the Khomeinist regime in Iran or when they would romanticize Soviet leaders who, well, you know, he he listens to jazz and he's very urbane and refined. There is always an attempt, Vladimir Putin, the way they talked about him, funny to dredge up those articles, especially today from our media. So there, there is that element of things. But I think with respect to Chinese, with respect to communist China, it's really as simple as this. They have America in a bear hug. The, the genius of the strategy of communist China was that unlike the Soviet Union, which essentially wanted nothing to do with the Western world in terms of opening itself up, so-called, and trade and engagement and the like, China said, no, let's let the West empower us essentially by recapitalizing us, by providing us with technology, by engaging in commerce with us, because as we build up that relationship and slowly but surely end up dominating in an industrial capacity, we will effectively own the West. And how could the West ever turn on us when not only would they lose our markets, but Look at what happened during the coronavirus. Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece publications said they would plunge us into the sea of coronavirus by withholding essential medicine to the extent we continued to blame the Chinese Communist Party for its malevolence during that pandemic. Look at what Elon Musk is facing in, te- in, in, with right. Tesla in China right now. And, and this is someone who is, you know, he, in theory, you would think he would know, you know, I better be careful about my supply chain running through China and being too reliant on that marketplace because if I get too big for my britches, they can they can knock you down to size. Look at what happened. China basically owns all of the parts that go into Tesla cars, and it was supposed to be a huge market for him. And now China is turning on Elon Musk, and he risks potentially a destruction in terms of market share of his company. And who knows what ultimately happens to Tesla, again, when all of its parts are pretty much made over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a micro example, which gets to the macro issue of because we have this trade with China and integration and engagement with China over the years, it has made it into a relationship where our elites are addicted to it. And they're willing to look the other way, I think, for a couple reasons. One is 
there's some people who say, well, this is just a cost of doing business that we're essentially empowering this gulag, um, dissent crushing, religion crushing, and, and really expansionist, by the way, also truly imperialist regime. Then there are others who I think are fearful. And that's not just about the loss potentially of market share if they speak up, but even their people who are posted in China. Because as we know, China essentially is, feels it can act with impunity and take hostages, in effect, uh, really outright hostages of Western powers, as they've done with Canadians and I believe Australians and others as well. And then you have the people who are the America loathers who say, well, you know, it's the sort of, like you said, critical race theory view of things, which is, well, we're really the ultimate evil power. And, you know, every regime has to break a few eggs. Uh, and that, I think, sort of covers the spectrum. You have the dupes and useful idiots. You have the cynics who think this is just a cost of doing business and we can't dare imperil that marketplace. And then you have the cowards, frankly, who fear that regime. Uh, and what that regime hates the most and the greatest weapon against that regime is not a conventional weapon. It's actually truth, and it's actually speaking openly and honestly about it. Because if you destroy the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and you break through that great firewall and expose its true nature to the people there, that poses an existential threat to it. And if you look in Chinese Communist Party documents, I urge all your listeners, if they've never looked at it, take a look at something called Document 9 that the party put out in 2013. And it, it explains that ideological warfare is essentially poses the greatest threat of any to that regime, and they cannot tolerate any dissenting views. And that's how you know it's truly a communist regime, unlike those our elites who say, well, they're not really Marxist-Leninist. Actually, they're perfect Marxist-Leninist to use them to their advantage and ultimately to destroy the capitalists. Perfect. Perfect. Ben, your writing is so important. Uh, please keep it up and know how much we appreciate uh, when you are able to join us and uh, help go over all this stuff with us that you focus on. It's some of the most important stuff in the world, really, truly. Can't thank you enough, Ben. Thanks so much for the kind words. Really appreciate it. You betcha. You can follow. Work, you betcha. You can follow Ben Weingarten on Twitter at bh Weingarten. Uh, his book, God, I, I just can't tell you how good a book it is. It's American Ingrate, Ilan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. He gets in that book into the whole notion of wokeness and progressivism and the marriage and the uh, and the context of the marriage that uh, Marxism makes with uh, the progressive woke movement in America and how Ilan Omar is the perfect uh, ideal, beau ideal representation of that, uh, I am Seth Lucen, 602-508-0960, your show here on out. As I go to break, let me put in a good word for my friends at Cool Touch, Chris Funk and his team are great supporters of this show, and they have a great new air conditioning system which automatically gives you just the right percentage of air conditioning as if a light dimmer switch on a light were being set. It's designed to do two things, the most comfortable living environment and the biggest savings on high and surprising utility bills. Cool Touch will eliminate the pain and the surprise with fantastic customer service. That's why I and all my friends and family use Cool Touch. We certainly do, and they have a great rebate Right now, for $2,000 on this great new system they have, reach out to my friends at Cool Touch at 623-734-1932 or checking them, check them out at CoolTouchAC.com. That's CoolTouchAC.com.
Com. And as usual, with Cool Touch, kick back and relax. They'll keep you cool. One of the interesting things about this country is good movements that kind of die on the vine for no great reason except exhaustion. The fatherhood movement was prominent in the 90s, for example, and I don't know whatever happened to it. There were a few think tanks dedicated to it and studies and books, and then it kind of came and went, but not by dint of success. Um, indeed, we just went through a year of the most popular domestic organization in America whose names name gets painted onto streets, buildings, and has streets named after them, where the movement itself says they aim to disrupt the nuclear family and do what they can to, uh, to um, not only destroy the nuclear family, but also to um, emphasize the importance of forcing mothers into double work, um, something I've never heard of, nor is there a law that expresses that anywhere in America, so far as I am concerned, add the Smithsonian telling us that an attribute of whiteness is having a father in the family and in the house, and you realize quite quickly that the last thing the BLM movement or the Smithsonian movement is about is helping black families. The importance of fatherhood couldn't be stated any better and by our good friend Dennis Prager, when I saw he did this, Prager, you on it, I had to air it for you. Are fathers necessary for all of recorded history? The need to explain why fathers are necessary would have been regarded as, well, unnecessary. It would have been like explaining why water or air is necessary. But we live at a time in which the obvious is routinely denied. There have been articles in the most prestigious journals denying the importance of fathers. The Atlantic magazine, for example, published an article titled, Are Fathers Necessary? A Paternal Contribution May Not Be As Essential As We Think. The New York Times published a discussion among five intellectuals titled, What Are Fathers For? One of them, Hannah Rosen, an editor at New York magazine, opened her response by stating, I'm not sure whether a child needs a father. I could give dozens of such examples. I'll just give one more. Huff Post published a piece titled, Fathers Are Not Needed. Fortunately, this dismissal of the importance of fathers is not universal. In a 2008 Father's Day speech, a few months before his election as President of the United States, Barack Obama said, Fathers are critical to the foundation of each family. That they are teachers and coaches, they are mentors and role models, they are examples of success, and they are the men who constantly push us toward it. What makes his comments particularly noteworthy is that Barack Obama grew up without a father. Both boys and girls need fathers. We'll begin with boys. A boy has no built-in understanding about how to be a man, meaning a good and responsible man. Male nature is wild most obviously regarding sex and violence. If a boy does not have a father who models how a man controls himself, he will most likely not know how to control himself, let alone want to. That's why most males in prison for violent crimes grew up without a father. 
After days of riots in the U.K. in 2011, quite like the 2020 riots in America, Christina Adone wrote a column for the London Telegraph, whose title says it all. London riots, absent fathers have a lot to answer for. In the column, she wrote, The majority of rioters are gang members. Like the overwhelming majority of youth offenders behind bars, these gang members have one thing in common, no father at home. There's no question that many mothers have done an excellent job raising a boy without their son's father, but common sense alone suggests that a mother simply cannot model what a boy should be any more than a man can model to a girl what a woman should be. And then there is the issue of controlling boys and their wild natures. Again, there are mothers who are able to do this. But if a boy is at all difficult, as so many are, as he gets older, most mothers will find it more and more difficult to control their son. Because unruly boys listen to their fathers much more than they listen to their mothers. Which is precisely why most violent criminals grew up in fatherless homes. They obviously did not listen to their mothers. As regards daughters, the father is the man girls learn to relate to. Without a father to relate to and bond with, there are at least two destructive consequences. First, she will not know how to choose a man wisely. She will not know how a man should treat her. And she may well end up with a man who mistreats her. Second, to fulfill her desire to bond with a man, as primally yearning in most women as bonding with a woman is in most men, she will go from man to man. Girls without fathers in their lives are far more likely to be sexually promiscuous and to begin sexual activity at an earlier age, which in turn are reasons many young women are depressed. Few women find sleeping with man after man fulfilling. Most find it ultimately depressing. Finally, fathers give both sons and daughters the thing children need most, a sense of safety and security. As much as children need love, they need a sense of security even more. And in general, moms give love and dads give security. I learned how necessary fathers are not only by having one and being one, but by the many people, men and women, of all ages, who have told me that they see me as a father figure. I am honored to fill that role. The good news is that many men can fill it. Grandfathers, uncles, teachers, mentors, clergy, and yes, even a man on the radio. But some man has to be your father. I'm Dennis Prager. Thank you, Dennis. We will be right back. 602 My friends over at Trades Unlimited are there for all your roofing needs. Right now, they want me to tell you about foam roofs, which help insulate your home from exterior noises. Of course, the Arizona heat and your house from water leaks. I know these folks well. I've been down to their offices and warehouse. Susan and the team are great people with a great work ethic. They measure twice and cut 
once. Just great people, which is why they have an A-plus rating at the BBB. The hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. With the quality and service you'll know and come to expect with Trades Unlimited. Don't wait until it's too late. Call Trades Unlimited at 480-483-1775 or find them online at tradesunlimited.com for all your roofing needs. Tell them I sent you. What's going on at Yale? What's going on particularly at the Yale Medical School? They had a professor named Brandy Lee who a couple of years ago wrote a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. She was a psychiatry professor at Yale, still is. It's called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess the president. You can only imagine what these 27 psychiatrists do in violating a rule of the Psychiatric Association, which is diagnosing someone who's not your patient, which came out of the Barry Goldwater run for the presidency when Fact Magazine had psychiatrists who had never met Barry Goldwater or judge his mental fitness. For political purposes, it's called the abuse of medicine, and it was perfected by the Soviet Union. Yale Medical School now had a lecture for continuing education. That is to say, if you want to maintain your license, you had to take this course. Yale School of Medicine's Child's Study Center offered this lecture, The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. I invite you to put in anything else other than white and see how you'd like it. Here's some of what was said by the psychiatrist at the lecture. The psychiatrist by the name is Aruna Kilani. She is an MD and an MA. This is not an undereducated woman. Here is what she said. Quote, and we have the audio, this is the cost of talking to white people at all, the cost of your own life, as they suck you dry. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil. Less than a minute later, she says, I've had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away, relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world an F favor. I could go on. I think you get the point. Now, do you remember in 2009, by the way, Yale University uh, over a month later now, has put a disclaimer on the video. Um, you want the disclaimer? Here it is. The video contains profanity and imagery of violence. That's the problem. Profanity. Yale School of Medicine expects the members of our community to speak respectfully to one another and to avoid the use of profanity. That's the problem here. As a matter of professionalism and acknowledgement of our common humanity. Yale School of Medicine does not condone imagery of violence or racism against any group. Is the profanity really the problem here? <laughs> it's not. It's not. Genocidal racist thinking is the problem here. Now, in 2009, after Fort Hood, do you remember all the Navy, um, all the naval employees who had been subject to Nadal Hassan's lectures. Remember, he gave lectures, too, on Islamic beliefs to fellow members of the Navy. 
And do you remember how they all said we probably should have said something when we saw him uh, boasting about uh, beheading flag, uh, heads of infidels? Maybe we didn't just pass him along throughout the system. But pass along throughout the system, they did. What's the difference? What's the difference? This is obviously a very sick person who has been credentialed beyond, I think, the ability of New York State to give a fair credential. And I hope the credentialing committee of the New York Medical Association looks at this woman's license and credential to practice in New York. Psychiatrists who have fantasies of unloading revolvers into the head of a specified race, which is what she said if she had a patient that said that, we'd be looking at commitment. Here? You know what we're probably looking at? Best guess? A book deal. Seventy-seven years ago, this is how Democrats sounded. This was from the final part of the uh, the conclusion, the peroration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's prayer to the nation ahead of D-Day. Seventy-seven years ago, this was the world's largest prayer up until that point in time. And as one of my callers earlier said, didn't hear much about it yesterday. Well, you heard about it Friday and you heard about it. Now, here's the prayer from Roosevelt. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Unholy forces of our enemy. We have those enemies still. That's how we used to talk. That's how we used to think back when men were men and America was America. Racial arrogancies is what we were fighting, and we're fighting them again now. Until tomorrow, keep up the fight. God bless you. Class dismissed.